Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I can remember every word of this phone conversation because it's so horrifying and I still, if I still think about it now, it just seems so surreal to me. He's like, he's gone back to Dublin. There's a friend of his had an accident. And he said, do you know a guy called Rob? And I said, I do. What's the matter? Is he in hospital? And he said, I'm really sorry. He's dead. Welcome to Grief Encounters with me, Sasha Hamrogue. And I'm Venetia Quick. We're a weekly podcast that looks at an issue that affects us all and yet remains so difficult to talk about. We'll be chatting to guests from all walks of life on the subject of death and all that comes with it. Our main aim is to motivate, comfort and create a modern space for people to share their own experiences. Could you think of someone that could benefit in listening? Tell them about Grief Encounters out every single Tuesday. Writer and essayist Sinead Gleeson has bought out an amazing book. It's got rave reviews. If you haven't heard of it, I don't know how because <laughs> yeah. it's been everywhere. It's called Constellations and mm. um, it's beautiful. It, the, the actual, the, the sleeve of the book would attract you yeah, right to alone, it straight yeah. away. And Sinead popped into us for a chat about the book yeah. and how it's structured because it's it's quite different. It's sort oh, of, yeah written in a very sort of, you know, regular novel, then it breaks off into prose and then it breaks off. But really why she was in was more to talk about um, grief. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of her best friends, Rob, who was a former partner of hers, um, who passed away and how that grief has sort of turned into how she wrote about that, how she took time to write about it. Mm. She didn't write about it quickly. It took took quite a while, actually, and how that manifested itself in the book. Yeah, and she's, I mean, she really is a remarkably beautiful writer. And writing about grief isn't an easy thing to do, although it is something that we all experience. But there's certain people who have like a really incredible way of kind of forming those words and the experience and what it's like to experience Mm. those things. And like she said, the book covers so many of those real things that happen to all of us. So parenting, grief, um, you know, I think I I I say this in the beginning of our chat with Sinead, but I actually like really feel so strongly about it. I thought I bought the book in the airport when we were heading to London to do um, some uh, episodes of the podcast and it said sixteen ninety nine on it and I'd wanted to read the book for so long. And then I started reading it and I thought, how could something so wonderful cost sixteen ninety nine? It's just weird to put a monetary well, value. It's sort of priceless. Priceless. Yeah. It's exactly, it's priceless. Um, and I think I learned a lot from our chat with Sinead. I think lots of you guys listening will as well. And uh, definitely, definitely go out and pick up Constellations. Sinead Gleeson is a writer and broadcaster whose new book, Constellations, is a series of fascinating essays around art, bereavement, her struggles with health, parenthood, and so much more. 
the crossover between grief and bereavement into the arts is a topic we've definitely highlighted before mm. and I have to say, you can see here, Sinead, that I was very excited to buy this book. I went out and bought it, even though we have copies here. I bought it in the airport. I had a really interesting conversation with someone about art and, and how much you pay. And I cannot believe I paid sixteen ninety nine. This is going to sound a little gushy. I'm sorry. For the most miraculous words. It's beautiful. Oh, gosh. Thanks so much. And it's strange amazing. that there's a monetary value on something because <laughs> there's so many beautiful words that you've written here about your life. Thank you. And about the things that come with with losing people you love Um, but grief in all forms and that's Mm. something we've talked um, a lot about on this podcast is it's not just about losing someone it goes beyond that in so many ways and you do that beautifully here can you talk a little bit about when you decided to write the book and what direction you wanted it to take maybe from the origins of that first seed of writing it? Sure, yeah. My whole sort of career has been around books and interviewing writers at festivals or on the radio. Um, So I've always been around writers, which is a great way to learn how to write. Mm. It's also the most intimidating and terrifying thing to do Mm. when you interview amazing people who are brilliant writers and you think, I'll never be able to do that. So I put it off for a really long time. And again, for a long time, I assumed it was going to be a novel because that's what you think publishers want and that's what people want to read. And that's what I spent my life reading. and then I started to find other work that wasn't technically a memoir or work that wasn't fully poetry or, you know, I've talked about people like Maggie Nelson or Annie Erno or um, Roxane Gay, people that I've just found some sort of commonality with. And they say you're supposed to write the, the book that you feel needs to be in the world or the book you'd like to read yourself. And I was having a lot of conversations as well with friends about our lives and about things that had happened and the big subjects and a lot of the time when people write a book like Consolations and I do find it really interesting that the words confessional and personal are often used to prefix work by women Um, and I don't think of these as personal essays in some ways of course there's a lot of me in them Mm. and there's a lot of my life and my experiences in them but they're about the big subjects and Mm. to me the big subjects which are grief and loss Mm. and love and death and parenthood are universal they Mm. happen to most people Mm. death happens to all of us so to me it doesn't it feels like they are subjects that a lot of people find a recognition in. Mm. So what I started to do as the first essay I wrote was about hair and I again really dithered about sending it out and what will I do and will I send it out or will anyone want to read this because um, it's about my experience of, of hair in terms of being short haired as a girl but also later having chemotherapy but also shaving my head in school as a teenager having pink hair and bleached mm-hmm. hair and blue hair and but I didn't I, re- I realised very quickly that I wasn't interested in just writing solely about myself so I started to pull in other threads so I write about the pre-Raphaelites and I write about Les Tendus the women who were sh- had their heads shaved by Germans as also happened in the War of Independence mm-hmm. in Ireland for collaborating with the so-called enemy um, I I write about PJ Harvey's song Hair. I write about Jewish women's shettles. So I kind of wanted to make it more of a miscellany because this book isn't a memoir, even though a lot of it is about me. And I wasn't interested in writing a book that starts at the start and ends at mm. the end and is just fully about me because I know my own story and, mm. I, and I also have a lot of interests. So I wanted to figure out if there was a way of fusing my interests and telling some of the things I wanted to talk about. Mm. And you play around with format so much too. Um, I remember when I read Jennifer Egan's um, A Visit from, from the, the Good Scott. Scott. Yeah. Right, and I, when, that, when the format started yeah. to flip, and I didn't expect it at all, and the yeah. same with this, I, didn't, I don't know why, but I didn't expect the format to sort of flip. Was that really exciting? Yeah, it was. And again, it's part of my built-in resistance to people going, this book is a memoir. And I, you know, I was thinking at least if there are uh, you know, essays that look like poems or essays that are sort of broken up or fragmented and 
and the one about blood is divided into the sort of the, the, the rhesus groups A positive A negative um, and again I didn't think this was a book for a long time I started to individually publish pieces and there was a great journal in Australia called The Lifted Brow and they have what's called an experimental non-fiction prize mm. so and three of the judges were writers I love Leslie Jemison who wrote a book called The Empathy Exams which is a book of essays a lot about the body it was a huge book for me and a book that people talk about writers giving you permission or lighting the way and being something of a beacon and that book was for me so she was one of the judges which is one of the only reasons I entered thinking I wouldn't get anywhere um, and I sent the piece in in the book that's called Where Does It Hurt which is specifically structured around the McGill Pain Index which is 20 groups of 77 words so I wrote 20 poems about 20 they're, they're not even properly poems they're more like little prose meanderings they look like poems on the page but um, yeah I wanted to mess around with form and I do think that content and form can be sort of interesting. There's also a piece about the space and the psychogeography of hospitals called Panopticon. And if you've ever been in hospital, you know that your whole attention span and concentration mm. is constantly broken by the noise and the mm. sounds and the people coming to take your temperature. So that piece looks as fragmented mm. as it does. But also it, the yeah. whole hospital thing is like, it sort of morphs into one. Like yeah. one day just goes on forever. Yeah. Because it's, 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 it's timeless. boredom and yeah. it's timeless and yeah. it's sort of... Or you're medicated and you think that somebody's been there five minutes ago and they're gone four hours ago. Yeah. So everything it's... And it's, they're airless and there's that smell of hot plate dinners. And yeah. They're really strange, isolating kind of places. And they're also a place... They're that, lonely as well. They, they're really yeah. lonely. And this is it. I, and I, I, it's funny when you, that you mentioned that when I, my editor was going through one of the, the paper edits and she said to me where you, I mentioned in that piece that hospitals are lonely. And she said, this is the only place in the book that you say this, even though mm. you're talking about the isolation mm. of being a patient, which is a really... Being ill mm. is a really isolating and kind of boring place a lot of the time. Mm. Illness is very repetitious. Um, and you sort of wonder about that as well when somebody has a diagnosis that might be a, a terminal one yeah. and then they're stuck in a hospital to be treated or for their condition to be managed. Yeah. So it gives somebody a lot of time to think yeah. about their mortality and start maybe the grief process for themselves. Yeah, I think so. And and I kind of briefly mentioned my best friend's husband died. He was only 40 when I was working on that, that blood piece mm. as well. And I saw how valiantly she tried to care for him and resisted him being in a hospice or a hospital and had him at home and it meant a lot to his mother and to her to have him there and to not have him in that medicalised space because mm. there are lots of wonderful people in, in hospitals there are lots of bad doctors which I also talk about in this book but there's a lot of really good people particularly nurses and it's still not your home though it's still mm. not all your things around you it's still not you know where your books are where your bed is where your cat where your is family where your family is mm. and I try as we can, can to make them sort of hospitable sort of uh, places they're, they're really not and I always found them to be really lonely and noisy and chaotic and, and if you notice any kind of sound at one point it becomes like you know the telltale heart yeah, yeah, on the yeah, floorboards yeah. you're like, it's like the alarm clock the snooze <laughs> yeah, button yeah, it becomes the, sort of the sound of yeah. your day to day they're, they're also the least restful places mm. in the world because people you know they wake you up for your breakfast at all areas the ward mm. rounds can start at 6 or 7 o'clock you probably slept kind of badly because you're coming in to take your, your obs your temperatures so I always found them like they're some of the worst places to, to get better in lots of ways but they are very important spaces and I talk about them they're kind of like galleries and that they're these big interactive spaces with loads of corridors and of course they're all full of paintings now to try and make them there's lots of cheerpier. initiatives yeah this is it I mean you can't really make a hospital no. cheerpier but I, I spent a lot of time in them so Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby It's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But yeah, even when I go to visit someone now, I still have that shudder mm. when I walk in the door that, God, I'm glad I'm, glad I'm going out in an hour and not, mm. not staying here. Because that's happened a couple of times. You go somewhere thinking you're coming out and then you don't. If you're looking for a safe haven to express how you feel, share articles, photos and memories of your loved ones, join the Grief Encounters Facebook group, a place for support, compassion and empathy for those grieving. The one thing we I, I find uncomfortable to talk about and we've it's come up is like trying to put yourself in the person's shoes in those last few weeks or months, especially if they've been in a hospital, because as the person who's bereaved, you're the one left and you're thinking about how it's affected you. But I think I always find it difficult to think about how my parents were feeling in those days leading up to, to when they died, because because they were in that environment. It's not conducive with sort of. A, you know, some, you, you know your... something's up. You know, you you, you know it's yeah. bad. Psychologically, it just yeah. feels like we could do a lot of work in sort of helping people get to a place that was a little bit more peaceful in those days that kind of lead to... And also families were crammed into small yeah. spaces, mm, yeah. especially in Ireland, beside bedsides. It's not... Ha- it doesn't help conversations. No, it there's a real lack of privacy in mm. hospitals. And you hear... You, you know, I talk about that as well. That you, could, you overhear conversations you shouldn't. Very mm. private um, dialogues between patient and, and subject. And often there is that kind of cramming together. Um, and I talk about towards the end of the book I talk about my, my godmother Terry who I call like my mm. second mother and I only started writing that piece when she wasn't dead and as far as we know she wasn't dying but she had had a diagnosis of dementia and she had moved to a home because she was hadn't married and hadn't had children and my parents are old themselves and had tried to look after her for a long time but again because of her illness she got increasingly more Mm. difficult and again also she'd always been a really independent woman and she was fighting that within herself that independence and that resistance to being cared for and so when she went to the home and I started writing the piece I thought I'll I'll just I'll talk about how she's changed how she's she's moved away from me as a person and Mm. the kind of the the, the small moments of forgetfulness the the loss of speech literally not being able to carry a conversation Mm. because you can't remember the right order of the words and how hard it was to watch I mean I'm a reader and a writer because of her she always bought me books and she was a working class woman who said I don't want you to have the life that I didn't have please go to college Um, and I turned my love of books into like my career basically Mm. and because of her I, I always say it's because of her and we always used to do stuff together and when she was when she was dying I remember reading to her because they were talking about you know hearing being the last thing to go and I, I maybe I, I would have written about her at some point but I, I would have been too big to write about her after the fact mm. of her death so I wrote about her while she was still very much it was kind of her her life was going gradually mm. downhill in a, in a, a you mm. know a gradient and then there was a series of strokes which accelerated everything and we knew then mm. that she was going to die we've talked we actually did an episode on dementia and with somebody who was is 
currently suffering from dementia and how they're the self grief yeah. uh, for themselves because they know that this is them as they know themselves is slipping away but also for the family like for yourself who's looking on and you just said they became somebody else it wasn't the same person how was that it's it's like you? it's like a death in a way yeah. it's a kind it's a different kind of bereavement um because the person i i mean i talked about in that essay about her her being like a body snatched version of herself mm-hmm. she looked like her she talked like her but it wasn't really her in lots of ways and i don't mean to diminish the person she was at all by saying that but it was just it became so frustrating that the for for her even the, the moments before she'd fully slipped away where she recognized what was happening and she'd say like i can't find the words they're just i just can't find the words some days um and i think i i talk about even myself i i think for for all of us, that is the thing. We all fear death, but we all fear losing our mind more than death, mm. I think. And I say that, like, I'd, I'd rather take a bullet, a shark mm. attack, uh, being knifed. I think I'd take all of those things before a long, prolonged um, distancing from my own mind, which I, I just, as somebody involved in, in words and, and mm. somebody who loves books and communication, I couldn't imagine not being able to, to be that version of myself. Uh, and it's, and it, there's no cure. I mean, that's, mm. this is so, such a horrifying thing and it's happening more and more and one of the interesting things when I talked to a doctor about it he said it's happening more because we're living longer but also with the current generation he said there are more women in homes because that generation of Irish men never knew how to care for anybody they were out working when women were having 10 Mm. babies so they don't have to care for their wives Mm. where more women who are older stay home for longer and resist the home because they think they need to care for their husbands until the end Mm. and I thought even that gendered aspect of it was really interesting But there is a whole Mm. gender and you alluded to it actually right at the start about women talking about grief and loss and parenthood and all the sort of the normal day to day things that happen to us, whereas perhaps men don't as much. Yeah. Why do you think that is or do you think that's changing or what would you would you like men to talk more? I think it is changing and I think when men do talk about it, people talk about it as if it's a political act and it's something really important and moving but they don't call it personal and they don't mm. think of it as an emotive thing in the way they do with women. Another very good collection of essays has just been published by Ian Malini uh, called Minor Monuments by Tramp Press and really interestingly Ian also talks about uh, in a lot of the essays about his grandfather's dementia so we didn't have together last week where there's a lot of overlap between our, our, our books and he talks about grief and landscape and loss and families and what it is when that one person is moving away from you so and I think Ian would probably say this too that there is that element myself and Emily Pine have said this that work by women is called personal I'm not sure why it's almost confessional sort of means that you're meant to atone mm. for it you're meant mm. to apologise you're meant to be sorry for, for speaking so honestly but lots of, I, there's lots of wonderful essays I read by men who are fathers that I think are wonderful and again I just think there is always that little bit there's a, it's yeah. almost it's stigmatised for men to yeah. talk about whether it's like miscarriage or whether it's yeah death of a spouse or a, a child whatever it's sort of almost sort of expected that they hold hold it in and yeah it could it could be part know. of that and yet from what i know from doing events and from one of the other pieces in the book was in the guardian that people want to hear these stories they want to find commonality so if you talk about that you've had a a, a rough time with illness or you've lost somebody that you loved or p- parenthood is hard mm. people kind of go i recognize that mm. that's happening to me or that mm. happened to me um so there's always there's these moments of recognition that happen with a book like this and so men are missing out by not sharing those stories because also men traditionally have had that thing where they they don't talk to each other and they don't open up obviously that's changed a Mm. lot more Ireland's changed a lot more Um, and I think they do and and loads of men have read this book and talked to me about it uh, and found lots of things in it so it's I mean I know a lot of women have been reading it too but loads of readers the first Mm. four people in the book signing queue last week were all all men which was very hard (laughs) to buy you mentioned uh, the piece that was published in The Guardian and in the book there's a 
truly beautiful account of your friend Rob and how you two met and how how it all happened and how he brought someone else into your life um it's a staggeringly beautiful piece of work i just I, I i read it like three times i i truly loved it can you tell us a little bit more about him and yeah. why you decided yeah. that this was an important chapter for this book absolutely it would probably come as no surprise you to know that this was the hardest piece in the book Mm -hmm. to write and the one that took the longest Uh, no joke probably about 10 years I kept putting it down and going back to it and I was meant to give it to Kevin Barry for Winter Papers a few years ago and I just said to him I can't it's not right I have to get it right particularly when there's other people Uh, I'm still very close to Rob's family particularly his sister Louise and I didn't want it to be wrong or to be something that was dashed off because there's a lot a lot in this essay which is about so it's about Rob and I used to go out together we met in college and it's it's so funny I teach in UCD at the moment on the creative writing MFA and MA and every single time I come out of that library tunnel and walk into the building I remember the spot where I used to see him and I think it every day I was out there yesterday I'll be out there later mm-hmm. today and I think about him every time I go into that building it's it's almost like he's almost a, a ghost in the halls mm-hmm. but we went out for a couple of years and we were became really good friends We it didn't work out uh, we were both very young as well but I stayed in touch with him and just remained really good friends with him. Um, he moved into a flat with a guy called Steve uh, that was in the February and uh, we all got on really well and I really liked Steve and I told him this and Rob said, oh, I don't think that would ever work. You'd be very incompatible, which I thought was kind of mean because I didn't think it was true. And yet Rob has sort of been going out with other people and it wasn't mm-hmm. that he'd still got designs on me. It wasn't that at all. So I don't know what it was. Maybe he was trying to wind me up. He did have a quite sarcastic <laughs> um, sense of humour. And I knew that Steve and I were both wary of offending Rob or what was going on. So there's a lot of toing and froing and will we or won't me. And eventually it was this, the first week in August. And it's a funny week because my Rob's birthday is the end of July and four days later is my birthday. And my birthday was the last time I ever saw him alive. And that was on the 31st. Um, Steve and I got together on August 3rd and Rob died on August 5th. So it was the week of us getting together, mm. which was a wonderful evening and next day. And we said we will we'll tell Rob tomorrow. Uh, and I was going to work at a music festival. And I just had arranged to meet Steve. He was he was gone down to Wicklow to see his own family, and he said, "Give me a call later, and we'll we'll meet." Uh, so I called Wicklow and I called his house. And as I detail it in the book, writing kind of essays or writing about your own life, you're using a lot of recall and a lot of memory. And I can remember every word of this phone conversation because it's so horrifying. And I still, if I still think about it now, it just seems so surreal to me because I called and I got somebody on the phone who sounded like Steve and it wasn't Steve, it was his brother. And I happened to mention that I was looking for Steve and he's like, he's gone back to Dublin and there's a friend of his had an accident. And I was like, oh, what's wrong? Is everything okay? Mm. And he said, do you know a guy called Rob? And I said, I do. What's the matter? Is he in hospital? And he said, I'm really sorry, he's dead. And I was standing in the middle of... Uh, a festival you know with the first beer of the day because I've been working all day Mm. Uh, I was in early evening and just one of those moments where you just drop the beer Mm. I was trying to find my friends running around just going and it's it's like a bullet. Mm. It's absolutely like a bullet. It's like you, you, the, you incompre- don't know what you're doing. It's like you, this. It's total yeah. incomprehension. You're completely bewildered. Everything. It's like you know that sort of shot in vertigo. Um, you just you mm. don't know what's going on, and it the you, you don't know where to go. What do I do? Who do I call? Mm. And I called my parents, who just gotten back from holidays, and my mother said she thought I was being attacked because I just wasn't making any sense and I was really hysterical and it's like that kind of news is that you hope you don't get news like that more than once or twice in your life because it's just it's so shocking and the next few days were just so awful and intense and his family were so distressed and Steve had to call his family and you know I've said I said it in the book and his family know this like he's he's almost never gotten over that phone call Mm. to to have to tell someone the worst thing you can Mm. ever tell them but you sort Um, of don't 
either. Yeah, you don't know. Because it's something that, as you said, hopefully happens once or twice in your life. If I think back to when we were told that Martin had um, basically terminal cancer and I remember going to Tesco straight away afterwards, I remember just wandering around grabbing yeah, stuff off shelves yeah. and I actually think I took about three baskets and yeah. put stuff in different baskets yeah. before I just took one and went yeah. like there's no yeah. Yeah. and it's sort of like it's a surreal part yeah. of your body it didn't really happen to you it's out of body yeah. almost it's, it's like but it's also a completely physical thing like your stomach absolutely mm. turns. turns you start to yeah. go cold the, you know the hairs on the back of your neck you have a completely physical mm. reaction to it as well as just your brain it's so interesting the kind of the, the body mind dichotomy your body mm. reacts instantly but your brain is just like what mm. And takes a while to catch up and doesn't know what's going on. Mm. Um, and it was just an incredibly intense and all. Like I say, I describe it as the best week and the worst week of my life um, because it was just so happy. And then it just took such mm. a, a terrible, turn. terrible turn. And there's, there's a detail like Rob had been working late the night before and I think he'd gone out afterwards and he, he didn't get up on that Saturday till five o'clock. He was having like a lazy day. And that detail is sort of, as I say in the book, never left me. The idea that the last day of your life yeah. that you spent so much of it in bed because you just assume as we all do that today is a normal day and everything's Mm. going to be fine and I'll get up tomorrow Mm. and tomorrow and for the next 60 years we don't assume that that, those kind of things so so that piece is about how I met Steve and it's about Rob but it also is about it's about mortality and about the idea of who gets to live a long life who gets to grow old And Rob had, you know, in contrast to all my terrible teenage years of bad health, Rob had never been sick. And then this one catastrophic thing happened to him and he was gone. And that idea that the, this, the body is so fragile, mm-hmm. you don't know what's down the road, uh, it, accidents or illness. Mm-hmm. And the fragility of, you know, our flesh and bones is just something that I'm, permeates this whole book, I hope. And it feels very much like he's not gone in so many ways in terms of who he is to you. Yeah. Not only because you've written this, but you mentioned that when people ask how you and Steve met, there's that kind of always yeah, that moment I had to stop between. telling it for years mm. because it just it often would get really sad or yeah. I would get start crying yeah. or, or literally we'd silence a whole room mm. full of people going okay I thought you were going to say it at a disco or something <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. so it just mm. wasn't like that yeah. in a club you yeah. know it, it's it's not that kind of story but it's such an obvious conversation but you know, do you find that comforting though sometimes do you find that sort of is a nice sort of gel that you have that and yeah. it's him or it was him and I genuinely did stop telling it for a long time because Steve was just going it's too sad it's just it's too sad for both of us and my husband is a is studio engineer and musician and composer so he recorded the audiobook with me and the part about Terry because he loved her as well my godmother and the parts about Rob I had to stop several times and so did Steve I mean we both mm-hmm. found it you know we both found it so emotional and even when Steve was reading the book and the, the Rob essay he just kept stopping and going God I'd forgotten how bad it was, mm. how how sad we were, how just, you know, it was like this huge rupture and not just for us, for his gorgeous mm. family mm. who were just, you know, bereft and oh, he's such a large circle of friends and so many people still remember him and talk about him and I, I keep in touch with his family all the time and I, particularly his sister and I go and see them at Christmas and uh, they were all at the book launch and, you know, I, I wanted to write about him as well because I, I kind of want people to know about him because mm. he was he was a wonderful person and he meant a lot. And our whole life, I mean, our son has his middle name mm. and I would not have met Steve without him. So this out of this terrible thing, something good happened, something great happened. And I think that his his sister has said to me and his, his dad has said as well, and with the piece being in the book, he's been sort of brought alive mm. a little bit. He's been resurrected a little mm. bit. So people now know about him, whereas a lot, he's been dead now this year for, for 19 years. Wow. Wow. But and I think sometimes yeah. when you see somebody's name on paper, yeah, in yeah, print, yeah. it sort of, it does keep them going and it, yeah. it, they're still there and they're Absolutely. still out there. And yeah. 
memory is a really indelible thing. Like we never, even the people who are who are gone, we we never forget them. And it can be just tiny things, like you smell something or you hear a song or uh, you or you pass a place where they used to live, and it's just they they kind of live they live on. And God, I hope we never forget those people. Mm. You know, it's a comfort to remember them. Sometimes there are the days where you think about them and you do tear up. And mm. but there, I also have loads of good memories of them. And there was a, f- a photo people when the Guardian piece appeared. A lot of people got in touch who knew him. People sent photos. Mm. Somebody sent me a brilliant photo of him. He'd sat on a chair and he'd fallen through it. I think I posted on Twitter and he's just laughing. And I just I was like, oh, the yeah, laugh. Yeah. I forgot how yeah. great his laugh was. But isn't it amazing you know? as well yeah. how you sort of you might see photos yeah. that that actually happened. Somebody works here. Yeah. Their best friend, it turned out, went to school with Martin and sent him photographs that I'd never seen before wow. from boarding school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, wow. and it yeah. is that yeah. it, there is that whole it's connection. It, it, it was yeah. like it was a complete like yeah. he'd never seen those photos probably, wow. and now I'd seen those photos, yeah. and it, that sort of and that connection with somebody you work with every day, and you'd yeah. no idea, yeah. and that's the whole sort of social media side. Yeah. Have you found that has helped, or because a lot of people would be very sort of like oh, social media. And, yeah. sort of death and grief whatever but I've actually found it incredibly helpful No I found it really helpful and I found uh, when I do events uh, and people come up to get books signed afterwards a large percentage of the queue are people who want to tell you about somebody very close to them who died mm. often it's someone young uh, someone killed in an accident someone they went to college with went to school with the neighbour um, often it's not sometimes it is just a spouse or a friend or someone they loved and again talking about those people brings something back but they also want in the way that I shared Rob's story people want to tell me about wait till I tell you about this person that I, mm. I loved and, and people are sort of finding those connections I'm also obviously getting a lot of people who want to talk about their health or their mm. illness or their awful experiences with you know the medical world which is, was all playing out on Liveline last week with women and, and those awful birth stories mm. but um People are sort of seeing their own versions, which we which we find with Annie. When we read a novel, we take the bits out of it that we like ourselves and, I, and that we relate, and we transpose them to our own lives. So I think people are kind of going. There might be stories that I'm telling, but they kind of go, "Well, look, I've experienced grief, or loss, or mm. or illness, or motherhood, or or I like Frida Kahlo, yeah, <laughs> or, or this is, and it's a bit of that." So yeah, I so I find hearing other people's stories they get a comfort out of telling it and I kind of like to hear those stories too it's sort of it makes you feel less alone like it, this hasn't just we all know it. yeah, yeah. it's all happened to yeah. all of us we've all experienced grief so we're all as, as isolating as grief is in the same way that illness is isolating we're not alone because it happens mm. to so many people and motherhood comes up on, on this podcast a lot yeah. because yeah. we're both we're both moms yeah. and um, we've talked to a lot of moms who have lost their children um, and we've talked to in all different capacities and how and how that kind of plays a role in our lives but there's a passage in here about talking to your kids about, you know, David Bowie. <laughs> and I just thought it was like, you know, the idea of how kids process death and how kids... Mm. Pro- and you touch on that a little bit too. Yeah, it was a, a period where they were just obsessed with it. Every single film we saw, every single song mm, on the radio. Yeah. And it was literally like, is Paggy Bonner dead? Is Mary Robinson dead? Is <laughs> David Bowie dead? Yeah. You know, is the guy sang video killed the radio star dead? Yeah. And it was just like, yep, yeah, no, no, yeah, yep, yeah. no. Oh, don't think so, better Google that. Yeah. Um, and there was a bit of that. But David Bowie, who they yeah. also really loved, because remember we went to Berlin a few years ago mm. and the Bowie exhibition was on. And he was still alive then and they were always, they'd ask about him regularly for having forgotten they'd asked about mm. it before. And then of course when he died, they were genuinely upset about it. But their concept of, of, of death, which had, again, at that point, Terry hadn't died. They never knew Rob. Um, but my best friend, Neva, whose husband, Collie, died, who they loved and, you know, used mm. to play football and hang out with. So they were the two kind of people, their first experiences of death. Mm. And it seemed too immense 
to them before that. So the idea of like that everybody dies and mm. that famous people die and the people who are in that kind of Disney movie that you like, mm. that they're dead. Yeah. It's the idea of, of people not just being in the world. They didn't for a while think about it in terms of heaven. They're not baptised mm. either. So there was a kind of, we don't really do the heaven chats. But when they asked me about it, I go, well, some people believe and you, you have to be open-minded and all that. But um, they just think of it as people not being in the world. So not doing what they're doing. If mm. you're still alive, they think you're somewhere, you know, walking your dog mm. or, you know, watching Liverpool playing the Champions League or whatever, as my son would be. But it's not something that they fear. They don't see it as a fearful thing. But when it came closer with with Terry mm. uh, and with Collie, they did see it as something like, so people really go and they really go mm. forever. And I was like, well, by, you know, listening to the songs that they like and talking about them and looking at photos in a way that you can kind of keep them alive, which kind of relates back to the Rob story a bit. But um, yeah, they, they kind of, my my son just doesn't really, the, the heaven thing, he's just like, yeah, I don't really. But I like yeah. the idea of the sort of the, the star app and the celestial, yeah, like yeah. kind of like yeah. giving them something about the universe or, because yeah. I think people find that conversation hard, you know, it's either heaven or there's nothing. Yeah, because you don't want to just go, go, well, actually, let me tell you about worms and what yeah. happens when your body's on the ground. <laughs> yeah, like a um, bit of a buzzkill yeah. when you're 10. Um, so I just kind of go, well, you know, some people think that you, you live forever and then there's reincarnation and then there's some people mm. think they're up in heaven. I said, but, you know, that's why life's really important and you have to make it count mm. while you're here. And then I talk about the star thing is also related to the title of the book, but it's about telling that the world's really big and everything is out there and adventure's out there. So make it count, mm. go places, travel, do stuff and try and have the best life that you ever because mm. your life is really as I tell them all the time your life is really privileged and good and happy and content and not everybody's life is like mm. that and not every ch- child is as lucky as you so don't ever forget that mm. you know when you're begging for more screen time yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but I think it is important what you're saying you mentioned Disney there as well like I mean Disney do this amazing thing of somebody always dies like there's always a parent that dies yeah. Yeah. and we've had Mary Poppins <laughs> yeah. mother dead Dumbo mother I dead know. all of this space of time all of which my kids have watched in the last and they've sort of asked about yeah. the two little ones particularly about you know especially the little one why, why does somebody always die in a Disney movie or before we go to the new one which which parent is dead in this one yeah. despite it being a movie yeah. and they've had it in real life yeah. it sort of makes them see that it's not just them no, it's, that it's, it happens it's, it's going to happen to everybody and even like we were watching the David Attenborough Our Planet thing which is on yeah. Netflix at the moment and my daughter literally if this some poor wildebeest is going to get it from a, a you know a prairie dog she literally has to hide under a blanket and go I can't watch she's really sensitive and mm. empathic and that idea of death and I kind of explain well you know if that prairie dog didn't eat then his little mm. pup yeah. prairie dogs would also be they, you know they'd be dead and this is just a cycle of life and it is and then when you explain it like that because uh, if you look at anything in isolation and out of context, it can be horrifying, mm. sad situations or brutal situations. But so the nature thing is also, yeah, so any baby penguins or anything, we have to <laughs> skip forward. Skip. <laughs> like, well, we won't watch that bit. But yeah, but I think that, I mean, f- film and, and music are sort of, again, some of those early encounters of things they have. They see, you know, mm. E.T. dying and then it comes back yeah. to life. Um, probably a bad example, actually. Yeah. It comes back to life. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just kind of shows them that everybody's touched by this. So make, make it count while you're here and mm. do happy things and try and see the good and everything. But before we, we again none of us and, and of course I never say this to them but we don't know how long we, yeah. we, we have and it's just important to, to fill it full of good things and good people and books and art and songs thank you so much thank you thank you Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 